So as we get started with our message for this morning, this Sunday is when we honor Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. dies tomorrow. So this year we thought that it would be helpful to zoom in on a particular voice that shaped King, someone whose theology and words and actions inspired King and many others. And this figure is Howard Thurman. So Vince, I would love to invite you to give us a little introduction to Thurman and what we will be talking about this morning. Yeah, thanks Haley. Uh, and so good to sing with all of you uh, this morning and to get to be led also by Ruby. I was a really great fan of that as well. Uh, yeah, so Howard Thurman um, is probably one of the more important theologians in American history, but is not terribly well known and uh, a lot of that has to do with uh, the narrative that we've talked about a lot at our church, which is that uh, generally in the world of like theology, thinking about God, writing about God, books about God, um, who's resourcing pastors and churches and people who go to churches about what is God like, generally that's been dominated by European and American uh, white voices. And, uh, and so if you are, if, if you're thinking anything about God, chances are what has been pitched to you from European Americans is considered normative theology. And then anything else is like extracurricular theology. So someone like Howard Thurman is often pushed to the side because he's a black man writing about the black experience in America in the middle of the 20th century. And then is that that voice is relegated to the sideline in society at large. And so that also happens in theological conversations as well. But uh, a lot of the things that especially uh, since, uh, since the, the discussion about social justice and racial justice has shifted in our country and become uh, more uh, full-fledged and full-throated from many people who previously were on the sidelines of that discussion, a lot of the things that we're talking about today, you would be amazed at Howard Thurman expressed in the 1930s and 40s. And so... Um, yeah, so Thurman, he, he, his most famous book that we'll look at a little bit is Jesus and the Disinherited. Uh, supposedly, this is the book that Dr. King uh, carried around in his pocket during uh, the Montgomery bus boycott. And, and he, would, he talked at length about how uh, Thurman uh, mentored him. They had a personal relationship as well as just being somebody who uh, formed King's thought from his writings. Um, in Jesus and the Disinherited, it's it's based on lectures that um, that Thurman gave over like the 30s and 40s, and then it was eventually compiled into this book. And he's asking the question, what is the gospel, it, the, the, the Christian story, to the disinherited of America? He uses that word disinherited, black Americans in particular, uh, but also all those in society with their backs against the wall is another phrase that he uses. He sometimes refers to uh, the, his his focus as the disinherited, disinherited. Sometimes he says uh, those with their backs against the wall in society, or sometimes he'll use the Gospel of Matthew's phrase, the least of these, which is uh, a, a phrase that if you've been around Christian conversations, you may have heard before. Uh, and uh, and so yeah, his his that's his great question is what what does the gospel say to the disinherited, um, and um, and that that's a really important question that he wanted to uh, discuss. Definitely an important question there. Um, and I would love if we could um, get into this book, Jesus and the Disinherited. If you could just give us an overview of some of what he shares. Yeah. So uh, the. The book begins with Thurman um, 
acknowledging, uh, I think, something that we would probably still acknowledge today. He said he notes American Christianity's impotency to solve racial and social and religious divisions. Like American Christianity has not solved that. Uh, in, in, in many ways, you know, one of the things that was said a lot in the 90s and early 2000s is the most segregated hour of the week is Sunday morning. And uh, so American Christianity has not uh, solved uh, the, the racial divisions in our country. And what, uh, what uh, Thurman then asks is he says, is that impotency of American Christianity inherent to the system itself? Like is just is Christianity just like yeah because it just it, it can't affect that, or is the reason that American Christianity has been so important to solve these problems, uh, is it because it's a departure from or a betrayal of the brilliance of its source, Jesus, and for Thurman in the 1940s who couldn't help but see the parallels between a poor first century Jew and those with their backs against the wall in the middle 20th century America, black people like him, it is clearly the latter. It's clearly a betrayal of the source. It's like, if we get back to his great argument in the 30s and 40s, if we get back to the fact that Jesus, the appropriate parallel for somebody who is a first century, like in an occupied empire, uh, minority person, the appropriate parallel to America is the black men and women that are under the thumb of white supremacy, then we can discover that, no, we've the, the reason that we're in this place where we have to ask the question, what does the gospel say to the disinherited, is because we have departed from the original source material here. We have betrayed the original source material. And I, I personally have like feel, I think this is the part that really draws me to Thurman is starting with that uh, recognition that there is a there is a failure to actually live out the message that much of the Christian language or Christian teaching in America actually claims to be about. Um, that feels deeply like connected to why this church was started in the first place. We have noted American Christianity's impotency to speak to or give expression to people who live in the 21st century in a pluralistic world where your neighbor across the street believes something different than you. We're all uh, like overwhelmed by the internet and information at our fingertips. We're, we live in a climate-threatened reality. We live in you know so many things that we look at. We look at American Christianity as and is impotent to solve any of our problems. And a lot of the things I think we asked early on when we started this church was. Is that an impotency inherent to the system itself, or is it because we have betrayed or departed from what this was originally about, what Jesus originally set us out to be about? And I think it's the latter. And so this this same kind of theme, I think, is where is sort of the origins of our community. And um, and now the challenge, I think, that's really important. Like as as the book gets underway. For uh, the, there's a there's a forward in the most recent um, translation. It's by a historian, a guy named Vincent Harding, who I'd never heard of before. He's a historian. I had to look him up in Wikipedia, but now I know about uh, Vincent Harding. But he uh, he had a great line in the forward of this um, of this book. It says the category of those with their backs against the wall in American society. It doesn't overlap as much as it did in Thurman's day and in Thurman's mother and grandmother's day. Uh, with those who are steeped in the words of Jesus. Now we live in this place where it's like, there is such a departure. It's the people who are most uh, with their backs against the wall are uh, often relegated away from the words of Jesus, told they don't belong with the words of Jesus. And that makes 
I think Thurman's words all the more important as we zoom ahead 70, 80 years. How do we use them today? His words are, are especially important now because that departure that he recognized has only furthered. Yeah, I think this language for me um, of departure or even as you're talking, thinking about disconnection, um, that much of liberation theology, which we have talked about here in different settings, is a commitment to say, um, can we kind of separate or parse apart the, the system that has become a tool of oppression and keeping out the system that is problematic um, with the actual inherent goodness of a savior who knows suffering and knows all of these experiences, can we um, find a God that is liberating and offers good news to all people, good news to the disinherited, um, when it can be a lot of work sometimes to get past these really problematic systems. Yes, absolutely. And and a lot of it is a flip of like the focus. It's like, um, so uh, when again, we talk about like, what is what is normative belief in God in America for any, probably any of us who are on this call, what we were told, you know, Christianity is, or what we picked up Christianity is, is there's this story of salvation and maybe you've been painted one or another pictures of it. We've talked about these before and maybe, you know, kind of tried to slice and dice them and, 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 and be critical about them in the past. So I won't do that right now, but we've probably been told, but there's some story of salvation. And then maybe if we're lucky, we've been told that there's a narrative of liberation that can attach itself to that and maybe like cling to the feet as salvation, you know, flies up into the air. Maybe there's a little bit of liberation going and what Thurman and what, uh, many other theologians, but Thurman in particular, because we're talking about him, what he says is it's actually, so like, what if, what if liberation is actually the story? It's, it's not the extracurricular. It's not the, you know, grabbing on and maybe it'll get through the door if it runs fast enough while salvation opens the door, it can run in behind. It's like liberation is the content of salvation. And so when we talk about the Christian story, when we talk about the Jesus story, when we talk about the gospel, when we use that, that shorthand term gospel, you know, when we, if you're in very religious settings where, um, where terms like, you know, are you saved or whatever are thrown about and used very quickly. What if behind all of that, what we're thinking is not whatever religious message we've grown up with, but it is actually like, oh, justice for those with their backs against the wall in society, a leveling of the playing field for the disinherited. So there are not massive inheritances over here and nothing over here. Th that is the content of salvation, according to Thurman, and I think according to King. Yeah, even um, a line from when we were singing earlier of, uh, what is it, dismantling the empires. Yeah, totally dismantling your empires, party. yes, yeah. And I think in a lot of settings that would come across as um, pretty, uh, I don't know, almost like direct and yep. um, too much. It's interesting how a lot of these, like almost what you're naming here in different settings of extracurricular or added conversations or this like social justice bend um, that that's seen as extra and instead yeah. recentering it as like, no, this is the core of what it means um, to look to Jesus as an example. Like this is not, not an optional dismantling the empires till each one of us is free. Isn't like an optional take, like, eh, if you feel like it, like this is yeah. pretty, pretty central to what Jesus says. 
And, uh, you know, you think about um, that line, dismantling the empires. Um, in, if, if Thurman is right, that the appropriate parallel for a first century poor Jew who's a minoritized person in his context is the black person in America today, uh, or in the 1940s, or you know, and and we can we can we can uh, under bring in our understandings of intersectionality today, where like there are lots of layers of identity that might be that might categorize you as somebody with your backs against the wall, a disinherited person. So not just black individuals, but anybody for whom they are minoritized or disinherited in our current society. If that's the appropriate parallel for Jesus, then the appropriate par- parallel for the empires that need to be dismantled is white supremacy, and the appropriate parallel for you know the the people of the Roman Empire, you know, sort of the 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 random Roman person who's just got a decent job that Jesus interacts with and has strong words for to say like you've got to you, you've got to give up something to follow me. That's me, you know, like that. You know, like though I'm those people in the Gospels. I'm not the disciples. I'm not like Jesus. I'm not uh, you know one of the poor people who are just a random uh, run of the mill Jew. I'm a random run of the mill Roman who has a job, who has status, who can you know buy my way through the next problem that I face. And uh, and so th- those are the parallels I need to draw for for myself. And um, and I think I think that that you know like I. Even if you had joined us earlier before service, we we uh, we played uh, the 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 full uh, speech of uh, Dr. King at the March on Washington, uh, from where where we get the famous "I Have a Dream" um, uh, piece, and uh, and one of the one of the images that I think is it really does translate well to today is. Uh, uh, Dr. King, it's like at the end of this march, and he's speaking to everybody. They've they've made it to the Capitol, and he's supposed to be the keynote speaker. That's supposed to, you know, you know, yeah, yeah, we we got there. And he says, "We have come to the Capitol to cash a check that the uh, that America has defaulted on." And and it's this idea of like, yeah, like you, America needs to pay up those who are in power. The empire needs to be dismantled and pay up to the disinherited because they're they have they haven't gotten their inheritance. Uh, and I I just think like that that uh, again you see. Even in that speech, you see the way Thurman in, uh, influenced King. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when we look at portrayals of Jesus that come from different social locations that we're naming here, really, that there's a direct correlation to the theologies that we form, and um, this is kind of work that Thurman does and that King draws upon that we're seeing here. Uh, so how does Thurman draw upon Jesus's ministry or narrative in scripture? Yeah, so um, what I mentioned before, kind of moving away from um, pictures that we may have in- inherited or, or um, intuited from a previous church going experience, uh, a lot of those, when they picture the idea of like, what is Jesus doing? What is the story of God saving the world? Uh, it's a very like... Um, it's it it's a very like uh, it's about escaping Earth, right? It's heaven after after you die, right? Um, you're being if you're right on the interior, then that will then you will be saved in the, in a in a cosmic way for all time. And so what's happening in the exterior, what's happening in your material experience is kind of it's like secondary. It doesn't really matter that much. And for Thurman, who is living through Jim Crow America, is like, oh, so the material experience of my actual life doesn't matter very much, really? That's Christianity? That's that's Jesus? And he kind of, you know, he, he brings you back to like the content of Jesus's life. You, you can you can take Jesus and you can take like, you know, 
uh, incarnation. God, it, it, Jesus is God come to earth and you can take resurrection and death and you say, oh my gosh, these, these huge, massive things happening. What does that mean? But you can skip over the content of Jesus' entire ministry and how Jesus interacted with people and how did he interact with people who were not powerful versus how did he interact with people who were powerful? How did he interact with women versus how other people interacted with women in that day? How did he, you know, like, you, what did he teach? You know, what, what were the things that we remember from what he said? And all of that is like, of course we can't set aside our actual material experience and just say that, you know, if you, if you believe interiorly, you will be saved for all time. Like there's, there's something going on that's like embodied and, and we need to, we need to actually see that like the, the, what matters about faith is not some, you know, abstract question, but it's like what's happening right in front of us. And what he talked about, um, another one of his phrases, you know, he, you, you can also see where King, uh, pulls from uh, Thurman because they, they had a way with words. And Thurman, um, you know, I've already talked about like the, the backs against the wall. You know, it's a really evocative phrase. He also had a phrase that he called the three hounds of hell. And this is how the whole book is actually structured. He talks about the hounds of hell that, that, uh, that like claw at the disinherited. These are the experiences of hell on earth for people who are disinherited. And, uh, and, then, and then he structures the book around them. He, he says they are fear, deception, and hate. Those are the three hounds of hell, fear, deception, and hate. And then he has very specific words on each of those. But they, they are, you must contend with these when you are a disinherited person in a way that privileged people cannot understand. And, uh, and, and, he, and, and his firm belief was that Jesus offers relief from these three hounds of hell. That's what we see in his ministry. They are, they are like experiences of your actual life. They're not, you know, like when you, when you're saved, you're not being saved to go to heaven after death. I mean, maybe you are, but you are, you are being saved from your current life because these are so, um, tormenting in everyday life. Yeah. The way that I've heard this talked about before, um, is this tendency for, to separate out Jesus, um, an embodied suffering human and Christ, a victorious mm -hmm. Messiah. So, um, that the powerful end up with Christ because they just want to claim victory and resurrection. <laughs> yes. um, and those who Thurman would name as the backs against the wall people, the disinherited, um, have Jesus because it's more closely related just to this, um, this hellish experience of navigating a life um, that is filled with a lot of um, suffering in a very now uh, way, not just a like endure this now and hope for what's coming, but that we need both together a suffering human and a some type of picture of relief um, to navigate these hounds of hell now. Um, yeah, but let's get into the specifics of what he talks about here. So maybe let's start with the first experience of fear. Yeah, so fear. Uh, the way that um, Thurman defines it is like the the psyche of a disinherited person is constantly afflicted by fear. You fear the threat of um, like the looming threat always in the background of violence from the oppressor or of you know retribution from the oppressor. If anything goes well from you, you're constantly fearing the other shoe is going to drop or you know insert your favorite cliche here. Um, and that, and then his his argument is that this has like a this has a psycho spiritual impact, not just on individuals, but like at, like generationally, this has an impact. 
And I think actually a lot of research that is on social sciences, you know, that have come after the psychological revolution of like the 50s and 60s. So since Thurman has written this, they would all, I think, totally agree that these have generational impact, these types of of experiences of fear that is, you know, is part of your your living in and and breathing in your regular everyday existence. And so that's that's what Thurman talks about. He um he he shares what he learned um, in a lecture from somebody else when he so he he's a uh, at a university and um, and he hears a Korean woman lecture one day at a student uh, like volunteer gathering, and he and he shares uh, he was really moved by what this uh, Korean teacher shared, um, and uh, and she shared if a if you ask a young American boy what do you want, they will say a penny in my bank and a piece of candy. Or something like that, right? And re- remember, we're in like the 30s, so yeah. a penny in my bank and a piece of candy. So that's what a young white American boy would say. And then, the, and then she goes on and she says, "If you ask a young Korean boy what do you want, he will say freedom from Japan." And you just think about that, how, like how different those are, right? Thur- so Thurman took this and he he said he learned so much from that example. He said the same psychic reality faced Jesus and the Jews of his time. And he argued that the same uh, psychic reality faces all disinherited people. The question of what you want personally can only come after the question of how you, as a part of your you know, group that, is, that has your backs against the wall, relates to the authority structures that be. You can only answer what you personally want after you've answered that question. Uh, I mean, this is today what we call privilege, right? Like the, uh, uh, if I am a person of privilege, because when I'm asked, you know, like this is how it gets personal for me. I am totally that young American boy where if I'm asked, what do you want? I immediately think something that somebody is asking me, like, what do you personally want? And so I do not know what it is like to be somebody who, when they are asked, what do you want? They, the, 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 the immediate, uh, what you jump to is not something personal, but it's something that has to do with your identity tied up with this larger group of people that has their backs against the wall. I like, I am, I need to reckon with the fact that the, the one that I am trying to take my cues from the, the one that I'm trying to call Lord in a religious sense, Jesus is not like me in that sense. And the, the person I'm trying to teach my children to follow is not like them because my children are those young American boys or girls who would say a penny in my pocket and some candy. And, uh, and, and that, that has, that has an impact. I definitely think there can be a tendency and you've named this a few times for us today, um, but to try to write ourselves into the narrative of um, scripture or other things where we are personally aligned in a certain way. And it's just inaccurate. Um, So to name the separation of like, I wouldn't be in the same social location as the person, like as who I'm following. Um, I think that that's actually a really helpful mental check um, for those of us who carry a great deal of privilege and power in the setting yeah. that we're in now. Yeah, I'm thinking about like scriptures. So there's like Jesus talking to uh, the Roman centurion or Jesus talking to Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector. And so he had status. Those are, are better parallels for a white guy like me in terms of like, how, how might Jesus treat me? That's, those are the scriptures that I need to go to. 
Um, and it's really helpful, I think, as as somebody who is you know is trying to to feel like what does it mean for me to interact with God? What does it mean for me to interact with Jesus? I think it's it's helpful for you to you know step back and ask a question like is Jesus talking to somebody like me or is Jesus talking to somebody who maybe is in a different social location in my world? Those are helpful questions to ask, not because you can't learn from something that is talking to a different person. You can learn a ton, but what, you know, like just, just knowing like what's my parallel in the story is a huge, huge leg up to interpreting things in a way that I think are, are going to, are going to, are going to bring us into a reality where we look at Christianity and we don't think what, what the heck? It's not solving any of our problems, but we actually see a gospel that is addressing the very need, uh, the very needs that we all feel. Yeah. Um, well, maybe let's move to the next experience that um, Thurman names here. So this was deception. Yes, deception. So, uh, yeah. So uh, for this, like uh, Thurman would say. Um, the the disinherited are stuck because the status quo forces them to learn to deceive the powerful in order to survive and this is a horrible like it's 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 doubly unjust because not only are the powerful unjust to the disinherited but then they force them into a situation where your backs are against the wall. That's why I think that that image is so evocative. You're backed against the wall. So the only way for you to survive is to deceive and deception eventually corrodes the soul and uh, of, of the one who is deceiving, even if you're doing it for good reasons. And so Thurman talks about just this, th this horrible double injustice of being backed into a corner where you have to deceive to survive and what that does again to the psyche, to the, to the, to the sense of self, to the sense of human like I think uh, I think this is you know again going back to Dr. King's um, March on Washington speech, he he talks about we must you know in in our in our thirst to um, to in, or in our our desire to quench our thirst for justice we must not drink of the cup of hatred and um, uh, I forget I can't remember what he used it was it was beautiful uh, turn of phrase from Dr. King but I think I think that's getting at the same thing um, the, there's this idea that like you feel driven to do that. And I mean, my, I think my own personal experience have taught me this. Like I, I know that I have, I think I felt um, pressure from my, uh, like not wanting to, uh, not wanting to upset people. And, you know, things I learned as a kid, things I learned in school or in, in families uh, settings that you learn like little white lies to get out of things, to not upset somebody, to make something go down a little bit easier, to uh, evade a problem just a little bit. And, you know, like, I, I totally get that like those things add up and amount to a corrosion of my soul. And then you take that, you know, you take my experience of it, which is not uh, mediated by by the fact that I, when people look at me, I might have uh, I might be uh, be in a situation where I need to deceive to survive. The the amount that I experience this is so minuscule compared to a disinherited person that like I can't even imagine, you know, I can't even begin to pretend to capture what that pressure is like uh, for somebody who is with their back against the wall in society. Uh, and so I think I like there, there I think is like something that we can all like maybe universally have one experience of. And then you take that and you multiply it by, you know, 500 to get the experience of a disinherited person. Um, I think that's really important. I think, I think it is an extremely important that like, at, for a Jesus follower, what we need to be doing is creating safe uh, spaces for sincerity, creating 
honest uh, spaces to 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 like to to never pressure those who have their backs against the wall to have to be uh, dishonest or to have to be uh, deceiving uh, and to and to call out those spaces that do that that apply that pressure because the injustice is on that side of the equation. Yeah, and I think we see Jesus doing this over and over again of creating mm. space for people to be seen and met in the midst of their circumstances and in their the fullness of their identity um, instead of forcing these cultural roles or norms um, that there's a lot more um, sincerity and honesty um, in like welcoming just the full full identity of people um, but it's so it's interesting hearing all of this uh, language from Thurman because it se does seem so ahead of it's time and like yes. I think a lot of what we would name as um, assimilation or code switching or things like that he's kind of using the the language of deception here yep. Yep. Um, but some type of move toward survival um, but the this understanding that it, it corrodes the soul of the oppressor and of those who are just trying to survive in the confines of a system yes that's right and, and just to, to double back on what you said a moment ago, because I thought it was really important, like seeing Jesus do this again and again and again, exactly what we're talking about, which is um, create spaces where that sort of stuff doesn't have to happen. Uh, and so we, we, we remove the threat of corrosion of souls. Um, I remember the way that you expounded on um, Jesus uh, meeting with the woman at the well for us and how there's there's this classic reading of Jesus with this woman at the well and uh, there's a line in there that uh, has always been read as sort of like a Jesus calling out the sin of the woman at the well and the way that you read it for us like if if, if we can remove those glasses and assume that it's about that there's actually another reading where you're saying it's like well Jesus actually could very well be naming this woman's pain mm -hmm. and that is a perfect example I think of creating a space where you do not have to you don't have to lie you don't have to deceive you don't have to code switch you don't have to do you don't have to assimilate there is there is space for you here as is mm -hmm. yeah that was the the example that came to mind for me as well um and to me that i think is a a pretty concrete call for us as well of how are we making space um just to name the pain and welcome the full reality of those we encounter, especially yeah. when we don't share the same background and experience and narrative, um, is there is there space enough? Um, but maybe just for the sake of time, let's uh, transition to Thurman's last experience that he names, just hate. Yes, hate, right. So uh, the powerful hate and discriminate against the, uh, the disinherited and the disinherited cannot escape the psychic pressure to hate back you know it's a, it, it this this again goes back to that king line of in our thirst for or our, in our desire to quench our thirst for justice we must not drink of the uh, the cup of hatred and uh, and i think it's because you know it acknowledges thurman rightly acknowledges hate is attractive i think that that's one of the lines that he that he talks about um, and, and it just feels really important this is again why i think it's such a travesty that thurman is not a really important theologian in American history, because like wh what an incredibly important thing for every human being, whether we're talking about racial justice or we're talking about 
you know, the, the, the situation in your home, you know, with your family members or your coworkers or something like that. Like, this is such a universally important message. Thurman is not, you know, like just for black people, right? Thurman is, Thurman is talking about God in a way that if we can see, if we can see from his perspective, we see God in a, in a beautiful way and in a powerful way. What, what, what he says is he's, he's diagnosing what it means to be human. He says hate is attractive because it seems to serve as like a generative force, right? When you're pissed off, when you're angry, when you feel threatened, when you feel hurt, hate fuels you. And so it feels really attractive. And But what his argument is, and I think, you know, most of us in our right minds would would all like say, of course, you know, hate eventually corrodes the soul, just like anything in deception. But the idea that you are a person where you, you live in a reality that is so cruel to you and so oppressive to you that you are pressured to hate in a way that other people never feel that pressure. That is, that is a double injustice. And that is so, so important for us to call out and label and, and, and see, you know, again, it's like, I have experiences of like micro versions of this, you know, in individual instances, I can like, you know, if I tried really hard, I could, you know, list them all, the experiences that I've had in my life. And this is nothing compared to the person who has their back against the wall and constantly feels such a pressure. And, but it, but it is universal, right? Like I, I remember the time when in a job I was the golden boy to my boss and then somebody else comes and they start to get the praise that I used to get. And that like hilariously, they even kind of looked like me, you know, <laughs> like there's like slim build glasses and a beard. And I was like, who is this guy? Like on my corner. And I remember, I remember defaulting to like, I, the, I've guys, I was a churchgoer. I was like trying to, you know, like order my life toward becoming a pastor at this point. Like I was not, this was not like, oh yes, before I was saved by Jesus and a good man. No, like I was, I was trying my best to be good and how quickly I hated this guy. How quickly? Because jealousy just like shrouds your ability to see clearly. And I've had one experience that I can remember that like really rose to that level, you know, that I can that I can dig back in the archives. It's nothing compared to somebody who has their back against the wall in society. Yeah. And I, I think it is helpful to um, kind of distinguish a little bit here with anger or what some people name as righteous anger, mm, um, mm-hmm, hatred. Mm-hmm. Um because I think that hatred and bitterness, those things kind of just settle and this idea of like clouding our vision or not really leading, leading to any direction or change. Um, like I think of bitterness and hatred is very stagnant in the sense that like it doesn't necessarily bring about things that are good. Um, but anger, and if you want to use the terms like righteous anger, like that has a lot more direction um and so what he he isn't saying here like don't like just you know just be okay with the just way be okay with are. it yeah yeah just but be okay not, with it mm-hmm. that's not the message and that's not king's message either um but i think this this idea of recognizing where hatred and deception and fear really can just corrode um who you are and the fullness of who you are but mm-hmm. there's i think it's important to name that there there's a little bit of, of difference there Absolutely, and even even within um, the uh, the theologizing that comes out of the Black experience in America, 
the, so like that, that's, you know, black theology is not one thing, right? Like there are, there are a lot of voices in that world. And so, uh, we, an, another theologian's name that, um, perhaps you've been familiar with, cause we've referred to, if you've been around Brownline, you may have heard this name before, but theologians are not like celebrities. So maybe you haven't, and that's totally fine, but there's a named, uh, James Cone. And James Cone is another black theologian that comes a little bit later on in Thurman. He's more of a contemporary of, uh, of King and then a little bit later. Uh, and, and Cone actually, I think, has exactly those uh, critiques of some of the earlier uh, theologies that are coming from a black experience in America. And so it's not like a, you know, here's here's one side of the team and and they're playing this other team and they have to you know duke it out to the to the uh, to the finish but there is, there are critiques within the discussions around like what does it mean if we are truly building off this idea that like the the parallel in America in the 20th century and the 21st century for uh Jesus as a first century poor minoritized Jew in an occupied Roman empire what is the parallel? It's the black person in America. That's that. That's one parallel we can draw. If you're doing that, there's discussion about how that plays out. And James Cone was very, very forward on the idea of anger. That that and and especially the idea that like suffering is not redemptive is what uh, Cone really wanted to say. And so when you experience pain at the hands of the oppressor, that is not redeemed in the sense that like, well, Jesus will make it okay. You just, you be a good sufferer because Jesus will make you okay. What, what Cohn said is no suffering is that we experience is what we must endure. We must tolerate it for now in the fight for liberation. And that's a very different response to suffering to say like, oh, just, just be a good sufferer. It's as in, endure because you are in a fight. And you and and this fight will be victorious because Jesus will redeem, and uh, and so it, it it's sort of a even that conversation I think happens within the discussion of what does it mean to theologize from a black perspective in America. Yeah, just this idea of um, that restoration and redemption includes both crucifixion and resurrection yes. and renewal. Yes, they, yes. they go hand in hand. Um, and to limit the experience, those experiences to particular groups of people is problematic. And um, I think Thurman's painting of these lived out daily realities and experiences of hell um, yes. or those against, with their backs against the wall is just helpful when we're trying to navigate what does it mean um, to be following Jesus right now, where looking around it is not hard to find injustice after injustice. Um, and what does it mean to have a message that isn't just patiently endure, but, um, offers a sustaining hope for just the lived out realities. Yeah. And I think about like, what is, what is the call to action that any of us might take, whether we are a minoritized person in this church, or we are a, a person of privilege in this church, or it's a mixed bag. Because again, as we talk about our identities are multi-layered and there are going to be ways in which we are. Uh, somebody with our backs against the wall, and then there are going to be other ways in which we're not. How, wherever it is we're coming from, I think a really important call to action that we can take from Thurman is seeing the way that he frames, like the way, again, he, the way he frames the conversation is let's talk about the human experience, the, the human condition for a disinherited person. You, your experience is hell on earth because of these three things. Now, what does it like? It, what does Jesus show us? Jesus, the content of his ministry shows us he is the one that uh, takes solidarity with those in pain, takes solidarity with those who are experiencing hell on earth. And so, what we can do, the more that we can 
expand our capacity for compassion, capacity to see the suffering of others and come and be alongside that suffering and never explain it away and never silver lining it. Uh, 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 there's a line from Dr. Brene Brown, right? We silver lining the pain because, oh, that just makes it so much nicer. Never doing that, but instead coming and being just a, a an ally to those who are suffering. If we can make that our goal, we will be, I mean, we, we will make a Jesus-like difference to everybody we meet, whether disinherited or not, because these are universal experiences, but we will especially be present to the disinherited because it is it is an experience for them you know with with multiples in front of it and that is why i think this is this is such a this is such a timely text for us now jesus and the disinherited well thank you so much vince for walking us through this and um helping us kind of see just the importance of thurman's words for who we are right now and how we're navigating things um, but I'd love to invite you to pray for us. Now. Yes, thank you. I would love to. <clears throat> Need to calm down. I'm talking about like uh, ideas that get me going, and I'm such an ideas person, and so that gets me amped up. And now I'm trying to like take a deep breath. I need Ruby to get me to do, do some uh, some deep breathing again, and then I'll be back in the right spot. <laughs> I was just gonna say we need Ruby to help us breathe. Yes, <laughs> that's what we need. That's what we need. There's a reason that we do this, right? There's a reason that breathing is such an important part of prayer and everybody seems to get that now. So breathe with me once more time, everybody. And out. Breathe in. And let me pray. I do feel, Jesus, that um, as we as we're talking about these ideas, and maybe they're grabbing some of us, maybe they're challenging some of us, provoking things in some of us. This the project of doing all of that experimenting or learning or provoking can't go wrong because in one way or another we'll be forced to like come to you and just say okay god make sense of this for me place these puzzle pieces in the right place for what you're doing in my life and so i pray that whatever has been stirred up or whatever has been shaken up whatever it is that you would now take some puzzle pieces and start to put them down for each of us we are a part of a very, very large thing going on here, each of us. We are just, we are just single individuals. And yet you see each one of us in a personal way and call us to this big, big thing that's happening. We thank you for the likes of Dr. King this weekend, of Howard Thurman who formed him, of anyone else that might come into our imagination or perception as we think about this right now, those who have shown us what an important, central piece to this big thing you are doing, God, is the story of justice and racial justice in our country. We wish for it to not stop there. And even as 
those of us like me who will pray this are going to be asked to give up something, we do pray that you would make us a part of this struggle. What must I give up to be a part of the struggle? In what way must I be the rich young ruler that Jesus comes to and says, sell your possessions and give it all to the poor, and then you can come and follow me? That is going to be a part of the story for me. For those of us who are like the first century Jews that Jesus came to be among, speak to, you, speak to them. Speak to those of us here in our community. Speak to our family members and our friends and, our, and, and those in our neighborhoods that we long to be spoken to like you spoke to the woman at the well, seeing her pain, making space for her, relieving the pressures that hell on earth can, can put upon We pray that you would make Brownline Church a communal space that relieves such pressure, that these hounds of hell from Thurman are nowhere to be found in our community, that you would weed them out in the places they are, and that you would continue to help us weed them out because we know they will grow again. That's how weeds work. And for the ways that our community then extends and attaches to other communities, our workplaces, our families, the streets we live on, the city of Chicago, the surrounding area, the country of America, the, our, our, our part in this world, for the ways that our communities attach to larger communities help us to also have that Jesus presence. And before we get too big and out there and in a huge, massive, all-world project, bring us back down to just what's right in front of us, the concrete right in front of us. What does it mean for me today? What does it mean for me tomorrow to follow you, Jesus? If, this is the, if, if Thurman helps us to see the Jesus that we are praying to, what does it mean for us to follow you this week? Speak to us. Give us long moments of silence or long moments of peace today so that we can feel that, feel your voice resonate with us. We don't have to, we don't have to fight to get that space. I pray that you would give us that space as a gift today that we may hear you. In Jesus' name, amen.